Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. A lot of you listeners know that in addition to this podcast, I'm also the co-founder and co-publisher of Brick and Elm Magazine, which I launched in 2021 with Michelle McCaffrey. The January-February issue of our magazine is on newsstands now, and we are right in the middle of planning and writing and photographing our March and April issue, which is going to be fantastic. If you haven't subscribed to the magazine, I encourage you to do it at brickandelm.com. As part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout-out to Starlight Canyon Bed and Breakfast, online at starlightcanyon.com. Today's guest is Joshua Rafe, who is the owner-operator for the Chick-fil-A franchises at Westgate Mall and on Georgia Street. Joshua and I have known each other for a long time, and he's one of the best service and hospitality thinkers I know. You don't need me to tell you this, but Chick-fil-A is huge here in Amarillo. Actually, it's, it's a big deal pretty much everywhere. And I wanted to hear from Joshua what it's like to operate such a busy restaurant. Now, we talk a lot on this podcast about local businesses, but I don't want to neglect the fact that franchise businesses like his, they employ a lot of local people. They have a substantial impact on the local economy. But this isn't just a story about, uh, you know, delicious chicken, because Joshua and his wife, Erica, were the driving force behind getting a meaningful state law passed in 2015. Uh, So we talk a lot about that as well. This is a fun one. Here's Joshua Rafe. Joshua Rafe, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to have you. I, I know you're not the only Rafe I've interviewed for the podcast, right. but it's, uh, it's an honor to talk to you. And I want to start with you the same place I start with all my guests and just ask you what brought you to this area. So why are you here in Amarillo? Born and raised. I uh, grew up in Ridgecrest right across Western from the Gray Steeple, uh, mm-hmm. Paramount Baptist, just two streets down. Uh, my mom... Worked at Catholic Family Service as a secretary, and my dad was an AT&T lineman, basically drove up and down I-40, making sure people called before they did dug. And, okay. And uh, dealing with the consequences of that sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah, grew up right there my whole life and went to Catholic schools nearby off of Georgia Street, uh, Amarillo Catholic, well, St. Joseph's Church, and then St. Joseph's Elementary at the time is Amarillo Catholic Middle School. And then uh, Emerald Catholic High School became Holy Cross. Holy Cross. That's okay. right. I was the first graduating class of Holy Cross Catholic Academy in 2001. So, okay. Yeah. All in the that little area my whole life. A lot of people maybe start out at, at St. Joseph's or, and they go to elementary school and then they kind of move into mm-hmm. the public school system. What was it like spending your entire educational career within that system? It was, I mean, it was great. I, it was different. I had a lot of my elementary school friends kind of move off that way. But for us, it was a commitment my dad had made. I know my older siblings had gone uh, to the public school system, but I think he really, by the time me and my sister came along, he wanted, he made a commitment to kind of put his money there and wanted us to finish in Catholic schools. And I think kind of sacrificed some of his own future for that, which I really appreciate. And it was it was wonderful for us. It's a great education. You know, I like to say that there were only six people in my graduating class and I was in the top 
half of my class, but right. like the next person down, there was a couple letter grades difference. Yeah, but so you, you, you were third in your class. Yeah, I was. Amazing, I, right? That's all I need to yeah. say. Yeah. I'm interested to hear that because I, I don't know that I've talked to anybody who graduated from Holy Cross, yeah. uh, especially being the, the first graduating class. I mean, does I know you can't compare it to the public school system, but like, what did you enjoy about that environment? I just think the size, just really knowing people, you know, that, that can cut both ways sometimes. But I think for for us, the size really growing up with the same people, it's kind of like a small town school in that way. Mm-hmm. And then the teachers really cared. I mean, the teachers in the Catholic school system, at least in Amarillo, are are not paid well at all. So a lot of times it would be retired teachers. Some of my best teachers were retired from CISD or AISD okay. and they were mission oriented. So they were really passionate about what they did. So the teachers really cared and we just, uh, we just had a great time. Really loved it. I guess you knew Robert Bush Oh yes. while you were there. Yes. A friend of mine. Yeah. And one, one my brother's best friend, uh, he was, he was at our house every Monday night for burger night, right? Okay. Burger night. So knew him well. All right. Yeah. Well, tell me what happened after you graduated. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do next? So I, you know, my my older brother who you've had on the podcast, Father Scott Rave, I wanted to try that out at least. So I went to seminary okay. in Dallas, uh, Irving, uh, Holy Trinity. It was uh, paired with the University of Dallas there. So I spent a year and a half there and discerned that I wanted to be married and I wanted to be in business. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So came back to Amarillo and I thought, or I think that the time I spent in Dallas was really, it made me fall in love with Amarillo actually. Hmm. So I kind of wanted to get away. That's part of the reason I uh, went to seminary there and it really gave me a new appreciation for Amarillo. When you're in that position and you start to think about your future, whether it's going to be that vocation or something like marriage, that still doesn't answer what am I going to do with my life? Right. You know, you can't just decide, well, I'm just going to be married and right. we'll figure that out. <laughs> so like, did, did you have an idea of, of what you were good at or things that maybe were attractive to you beyond the relationship part? Right. So yeah, I knew I wanted to be married. That's about all I had. I had no prospects at that point. So okay, uh, and there the wasn't world, somebody no, you know, advising you to say, maybe you out. need to come. No, no. All right. But I did go, I enrolled in WT, and all I knew is the only thing I was decent at was English. So I became an English major, got involved at the Catholic Student Center there in Canyon. Mm -hmm. And man, I loved WT. I I had a really great time there, great professors. And honestly, still had no idea what I was going to do. I was working, uh, you know, I had started at uh, Chick-fil-A when I was 15, but had just gone back there because I didn't know what to do. And I, I would have two or three jobs at a time mm-hmm. while paying my way through school, taking 16 hours just to kind of see what was out there. And I learned pretty quickly that I hated sitting at a desk. I, I was a file clerk. I worked in some archives. I helped write uh, development grants at another job. And then one crazy summer I worked uh, all day at Chick-fil-A. And then I put on my Stetson and cowboy boots and went down in to the canyon and worked for Texas, became the okay. assistant gift shop manager. Okay. And that was a wild time. But during that time, I think I was probably a junior going into my senior year at WT. I was just watching some videos. My my Chick-fil-A operator I brought back from it's this annual conference basically. And you could 
watch some of their rah-rah speeches. And uh, I just got interested in what they were saying. It, it just seemed like I knew it was a good company, but I'd worked there so long. I, I, I took it for granted. And I saw some of the things they were saying. They, they were they were customer obsessed. They weren't talking about the next quarterly earnings report. And okay. stuff. It was talking about our people and the guests. And so I was asking my operator kind of more about it. It turns out, um, in a nutshell, to become a Chick-fil-A operator, at that time, you only needed $5,000. And it was the founder's way of partnering with entrepreneurs and okay. not people of means, you know, not a dentist from Jersey who can remotely operate it. Right. So I found out, well, hey, I can, well, I took a loan out for 5000 but they also would let you be any kind of major you wanted. And all I was good at was English. So yeah. I was like, hey, I can graduate with an English degree and take a loan out. So that's, I never thought I'd be in fast food, but that's kind of just during college, I fell in love with the company and decided to go for it. That year when when you decided to go for it, what year was that when you got the $5,000 loan and you became a... So near the end of my senior year of uh, of college is when I decided. And what I did is I, I got into a program with Chick-fil-A called the Interim Manager Program, basically where they send you around the country, Okay, especially if you're young. I mean, I was 21 at the time. And I had not made it very far. I was working at Chick-fil-A South Coulter. I was only a shift manager. I didn't even know how to make schedules. So I went to Atlanta where Chick-fil-A is based and trained for a week. And then they sent me to right after, I mean, the day after I graduated, sent me to Shelby, North Carolina, to Cleveland Mall and for 56 nights. I'll mm. never forget that because I also ran a, a little, we had a booth at the local fair. And by the way, if you if you want to go to a real county fair, go to one in the deep south. It is wild stuff. I mean, I can imagine. Uh, I just uh, yeah, it, but we had the booth there right by uh ironically the chicken coop. Uh, so there were live chickens so you could pet and you could eat chicken no at Chick-fil-A right yeah. <laughs> right next door. So just had a wild time with that and eventually you know, I just started working at Colter. I got married. I was making eight bucks an hour back in the box of nuggets in the kitchen. The corporate rep came back and into the kitchen and said, okay, we have your next assignment. It's going to be at Westgate mall. And, uh, the, the operator there had, had left suddenly. And so I needed to run it for corporate and, uh, learned a lot there. This is, you know, way back in 05, but everything that could be going wrong was if you've seen kitchen nightmares and, yeah. uh, lost the entire team within the first six weeks. Wow. And, the mall it was, itself was going through some transition oh, yeah. at that point, too. Yeah. It was wild. Um, so we had a difficult start, but I knew I needed to get my foot in the door with Chick-fil-A. They offered me to interview to become the operator. Okay. And uh, we did that, which is in and of itself was wild because we had a preemie baby, our first baby. And uh, they they flew us. So we said, well, go ahead and fly us in for the interviews because she's being taken care of by nurses, you know, because we knew we needed to go. So they did. And we found out later the CEO, Dan Cathy, was really upset about that, that they they actually flew us in. Yeah. Hmm. But we had really told them to. But again, just a little sign of that there's good people at the top there. But so we interviewed and we got it. And I had to go to Atlanta for a couple months and, and train. But over those four years, it was it ended up being really good. We doubled the sales in four years and won some awards because we had a great team there and then uh, got out to Georgia Street in 2011 when it was built. 
So at, at that point with the one at the mall, mm -hmm. were you considered an operator before you were an owner? I mean, at what point so, do you become so, an owner operator? Right. So that's, it's easier for people when I, that's why I put on my name tag owner operator mm -hmm. to kind of convey our role. Our official title is operator. So okay. we use those two terms interchangeably. And it's it's such a strange, you know, I, I am a franchisee, but we, Chick-fil-A is very fee heavy and we split the profits. And, and so a lot of people in this business would say we're glorified general managers. Okay. And that's fine if they say that. But another reason they say that is because we can only have one, maybe two. Uh, the, the most you can have is three and there's only like 20 people who do. And that's because Truett really wanted um, local people who knew the neighborhood, knew the customers, knew the team. And he thought that was part of the magic of his business. And I think, um, you know, over the years, we've seen that that's really worked well uh, for us. And, and the Amarillo community, I hope, has seen that too. So. And they want you to be involved too. Like yeah. you don't just buy a franchise, hire some people to run it, and right. then sit there and, and take all the profits from it. They want you like in the store. Yeah. And they, if you go and you try to apply online, it'll ask the person, are you looking for a passive investment? And if you say yes, they'll automatically block you and say, mm -hmm. this is a hands-on thing. Why is that? Well, just because Truett wanted to partner with entrepreneurs. He wanted people who cared uh, like he cared. And so he set it up that way. It's very unique. It still is to this day uh, a really unique arrangement in the restaurant or franchising business. They have now I just heard they have about 120,000 people apply a year and they partner with about 100 wow. out of that. And I tell people I still don't know how I made it in, yeah. but I, I guess saying, you know, a local kid wanting to run the Westgate Mall, you know, and nobody else did. Uh, you know, Westgate Mall, by the way, was only the second Chick-fil-A west of the Mississippi, opened in October of 1982. Was so really? Yeah. Because I remember, like, it had always been there. Right, right. But I didn't realize it was that unique. Yeah, so South Plains Mall was the first in Lubbock, and then we were the second. And uh you know, for years, just they would hand out the chicken at the lease line. Yeah, yeah. Again, Get the we, samples. Yeah, they were delicious. We, and and then you know when when South Coulter opened in '97, that's still out on the west edge of town. So when I opened Georgia Street in 2011, we were still considered by Chick Fil A a low awareness market because hmm. and and we really were. A lot of people had not really engaged with the brand a lot. Uh, so and Georgia Street has helped that. Tremendously. Tell me about that decision to expand, not just to operating the uh, the Chick Fil A at the mall, but the, to open the one on Georgia Street. Mm -hmm. Is is that your decision? Is it corporate sees maybe there's uh, a need for a third location mm -hmm. in Amarillo? How did that work? So it's all Chick Fil A driven. Okay. Again, another unique part. They do listen to us. So I remember at that time they were looking at going in at Western Crossing on Western I-40. And I, I can see internal real estate plans. And that fell through uh, because there's another restaurant going in there that uh, exercised their non-compete okay. with us. So that fell through. And I actually was then looking, you know, the malls are pretty razor thin on the profitability side. So we were looking at Oklahoma City at a store there. And at the last minute, I pulled out. I They told me later they were about to offer it to me, like in the next couple of days. And I pulled out because at the end of the day, I couldn't leave Amarillo. Yeah. And, and I knew I'd be regretting it. So we decided to just trust that everything would work out. And sure enough, a couple months later, it was on Good Friday of 2010. Um, 
my, the real estate rep for corporate had said, Hey, we're also interested in Georgia street. You know, he, he kind of gave me a range of where they were looking. I know I had told them about the Hastings closing down right that, that corner, but by the time they got around to it, Ruby tequilas had already signed on it. Okay. And so, um, he said, just drive up and down the street. Occasionally, if you see anything, just let me know so we can be more on the ball this time. And good Friday, 2010, is when that for lease sign went out on the old Saturn dealership at 26 in Georgia. And I called them and they put a letter of intent in that day. Wow. So, And by the way, I moved out to that. So I only reacquired the mall just last summer okay. as a multi-unit operator. So. so there's a big difference in operating. Well, I assume there's a big difference in operating a Chick-fil-A at the mall where all traffic is going to be walk-in right. versus the Georgia location, which is just, at, at this point, always has somebody you know in the drive-through. It, it's, right. it's very car-heavy. What was that transition like for you, moving from, from the mall to a brand-new location? Crazy. Yeah? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, freestanders can be 10 to 15 times busier than mall restaurants, so... It was wild. I, I had to redevelop myself as a leader. I was used to getting my arms around everything as my own marketing director and HR and and all those. Because, you know, restaurants are microcosms of Fortune 500 companies. Every department that you'd see in a major corporation is in a restaurant. Right. Uh, so I was doing it all. And, uh, you know, by the end of it, running a little ragged at the mall because we had gotten busier. And then, you know, going out to a free center, you have to change as a leader and you have to lead through others and trust people and realize you're not the smartest person in the room. And, uh, I was able to do that after about six months there. Okay. After you learned and burning. on the job. Yes. I, I learned a lot there. And, you know, I kind of have to reinvent myself every couple of years because we keep growing and I will hit a wall and I kind of, my leadership goes down a little bit and I've got to rethink things and, and hire I just the the people that we work with are incredible. I have an incredible team, but we every it seems like every couple of years you've really got to redevelop yourself to keep growing and to grow your capacity. So well, and, and I know that there's a lot of change just in how you did things uh, forced on you in uh, 2020 because of oh, COVID, wow. and that that transformed you know not only how things were done that year, but like some of those changes have continued, yeah. you know, as, as you've learned better ways to, to run the drive through more efficiently and, yeah. and all those things. So tell me about some of the things that maybe were forced on you and that have continued today because it, it worked. <laughs> the pandemic was a rough year for us all. And I think that goes without saying, you know, for us to have to close down our dining room and our playground, well, first is playground, then the dining room. We were closed for, you know, a year inside, and that did make us – we've always been drive-through focused, but that really made us, you know, you we need to get efficient. Then we introduced things like curbside. I had been really lucky. So in October of 2019, we got on a test with Chick-fil-A for our own delivery business. We had noticed, hey, there, there are these people coming in and ordering – picking up orders that people were ordering through an app, you know, DoorDash was still mm -hmm. young at that point. And we really could, we, we still do that, but we, we can't really control the quality or even the customer experience of who comes to your door. So we wanted in on that. So 
I was one of 60 stores okay. in the country, and we had started testing that. And we were really lucky because when the pandemic blew up, uh, delivery you already up. have that in place, right? Then. So right now we're one of the top ten stores in the in the chain uh, for Chick Fil A delivery, and we're we're always growing it because we really believe in it, really believe in delivering a great experience to people in that way. But yeah, it was tough, and and like you alluded to last year, it got even worse as if we hadn't been beat down enough. Inflation hit, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I personally failed as a leader April of last year. I got scared because my income got cut in half for my family. So I led out of fear instead of out of growth. And I I cut labor too much uh, against, again, my people are smarter than me. They told me not to do it. I did. I made it. I forced it. And then what happened was people, like good people we wanted to keep, couldn't get their hours. So they left too. It became a vicious cycle. Hmm. And it took me... It, it actually took, it was a trip to Atlanta. I had already committed to taking 10 leaders to Atlanta to see our support center. And, you know, there, there's a lot of culture over there. You see uh, Truett, the founder, you see what he did and how he led. And you just get this culture dunking. And, man, I just realized, you know, as I sat around the table at the tent, hey, what did you get out of this trip? I realized I got out maybe more than anybody, like, remember why I did this, that it's about serving great experiences. And like, I never thought I'd be in fast food, but I got in it because I believed in uh, making people's lives better by making their days better, right? Just little interactions. So that really shook me awake in October. And uh, I had started loosening up. I said, okay, we're, we're people is what got us here. Mm-hmm. We're just going to, I'll take the hit and we're, we've got to write this ship. Because, you know, I'd say the second half of 2022, our drive through slowed down because we couldn't put people out there. It was just killing us. And the customers were telling us, this isn't the Chick-fil-A hmm. we know. So now we are almost there. We are, we, we've got, uh, the week I'm speaking to you, we've got something like uh, 10 times the amount of normal trainees on shift this week as we normally do. And we plan on getting back to who we are and how we got here and we're, we're going to grow our way out of this and, and give people customers because frankly, they're paying more now because of inflation. Yeah, everybody. And is. how can we, how can we ask them to pay more and still deliver a subpar experience? And that's what we were doing. So I learned a lot as a leader. I think it was my toughest year last year as, as a leader, but uh, I'm excited for the new year. Have the dining room visits gone back to what they were or did your customers kind of switch their practice? Yeah. So, uh, dining room came back like Chick-fil-A really realized cause we did some soul searching there Are dining rooms necessary. Like we all know kind Can of, we just be like a takeout right, stand. Right. Well, and, and drive through only, uh, restaurants. There's, there's maybe 50 of them in the country drive through only Chick-fil-A's okay. that like when the real estate needs needed it, they didn't have enough room, they would do it, and they're they're way more profitable than running a dining room. So you know, overheads they, lower, right? Oh yeah, right. And so we we kind of there are a lot of us operators saying, hey, maybe yeah. I, I you know I was kind of on the fence, but a lot of them said, let's just go to drive through only. This is great, but you know, looking at it, and I think we all on the ground realized there's something special about a dining room. People need that sense of connection, community. They need to feel connected to those around them. 
And the playground was a big deal. We realized the playground is part of our future too. And at first, I think early on in the pandemic, we're like, nobody's going to come back to playgrounds. Yeah. Like, playgrounds <laughs> are done yeah, forever. Yeah, right? like a hive of scum and villainy, yeah. right? But, uh, but we, we realized, no, we, we've got we've to really commit to cleanliness because people love them. They need them. And, uh, you know, here in Amarillo, the mask thing never really took off. We masked for a long time, maybe more than most. But eventually, I think with the team, we just gave it option. I still have, I still have team members who mask, and we respect that. And uh, I think all of our procedures around food safety and cleanliness, a lot of that has stuck around. Yeah. And I, again, I tell people, if you if you have food poisoning, I, I, I'm I almost promise you that was from home because, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, I drive my wife crazy because I'm always temping things and like, no, you can't leave that steak out overnight on the yeah. counter. But uh, restaurants are so safe with with all the requirements we have. You talked about 2020 being a hard year and, and you talked about the culture of Chick-fil-A. I, I want to ask you if it's OK about another hard year for you. And that yeah. was the year when Chick-fil-A sort of blew up into the national conversation because of some comments made by the leadership about LGBTQ mm-hmm. um, and that culture. And I, I've known you uh, for, for many years. I knew you at the time. I remember how frustrated you were because mm-hmm. this was a crisis that was not of your own making. Right. And you were just like, man, I just want to sell chicken to people. Yeah. Can you tell me like what that year was like and sort of what, yeah. I mean, what has been some of the impact of that? I mean, here in Amarillo, you know, it's a it's still a very conservative place. And so sure. it's not the impact that other Chick-fil-A's may have had. But is, is that something that continues to to be something that you think about or deal with? Yeah. So 2012 was a crazy year. That's like understatement. Okay. But uh but yeah, and and the condensed version is is the CEO Dan was given a radio interview to the Baptist Free Press and said something gay marriage was in the headlines at that time and said said some things against it and that went viral and it was difficult because we all know the family. And they've never been political, so that kind of sidelined us, too, those that knew them. And so, of course, right just right then, there was backlash. I think we got some nasty calls at the restaurant, and, you know, I did, and I continued to employ members of the LGBT community, and uh, I had to meet with that. some suppliers I met with personally saying, listen, we're, we're just here to sell chicken, and... And I think we all learned a lot. And what what I would like to say is it started with that seed and then it blew up. So the internet kind of takes a life of its own. Mm-hmm. So to this day, you know, we, we did realize we didn't have a good giving strategy. So there was like a lower level at Chick-fil-A that just wrote checks to anybody who asked. Like I asked for a donation to the new wear tower at BSA around that time. And they just wrote a thousand dollar check, right? Well, uh, it was this low-level staffer. Well, uh, things like, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a gay conversion therapy. Oh, uh, Exodus. Exodus. Exodus Ministries. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they, you know, they staff her a $1,000 check. Well, you know, then it gets reports. So not only does Chick-fil-A gay people, they donate 
million, you know, $3 million or whatever it was to anti-gay organizations and Exodus International as well. Well, they were $1,000. And then it turns out we were partnered with Focus on the Family, except for marriage programs because they had been passionate and they are passionate about marriage enrichment. Well, they had political arms. Mm-hmm. So it was it was sloppy uh, on that side and they acknowledged it and, and buttoned up their giving strategy to really focus on education, on hunger, and on on leadership development and in those years afterwards oh and then the other thing that happened during that time is we're really i think ginned people up around here because i think there were a lot of people who were supporting us and they they were fine with gay marriage what they what upset them was back east we were about to go into boston and there was, I think, a city in California we were about to go in, and the mayor stepped in and tried to deny our building permits. Hmm. And it was a, it became a free speech cause. And so that's when Mike Huckabee did his Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day, and that was a wild day. And and that's what people, when I was with people around there, and you know, we told the team, don't if anybody says anything, just just try to stay out of it. Say my pleasure, give them good service. But most people were saying kind of waving the free speech flag at Mm -hmm. that point. But in the years since, I mean, I still meet with people to this day in the LGBT community just to express, just to try to do my own little uh, way to cut through some of the stuff they see online. I mean, I still see in the, you you know, comment sections. Sure, sure. Still see that, that, yeah, they have a policy of not hiring gay people. What do you mean? Like that, that's never been... Us and and I think we also realize like we want to be we want to be known as the world's most caring company, but how can you do that if you alienate half of the country? Yeah, like you if if we want to live out biblical principles, you do that by being a light on the hill and and through action by serving, right? And you don't put out Bible verses necessarily. You don't uh, you don't wear your faith on your sleeve. And I'm not saying the company. Is a Christian, Truett used to say that a company is an entity. It can't be Christian or non-Christian, but it was founded on biblical principles. Right. But you don't do that by slapping people across the face with with your interpretation of Scripture. Scripture itself, you, you serve and you, you give really great customer service. And then if people want to look up how we are founded in the principles, they can come to their own discovery. So, And you can have those principles be part of the founding without... It feeling like this is a politicized right. chicken restaurant. You know, right. this is a, a restaurant for Republicans who right. like chicken as opposed yeah. to. And what's crazy is like Jimmy Carter is a great friend of Truett's and would always go up to the support center. He had John McCain. He he would have all sorts of people. So it's why I think a, another and, and Dan's a great guy. I think the family's been maligned too, but they they're just great people. And uh, I, I think it's a lesson for all of us just going down into political stuff, especially in business, I, I don't I don't think is a is a great path forward because you want to serve people where they are and you putting up walls uh, isn't always the best idea. And any controversy since then is usually ginned up by activist groups. Uh, hmm. Well we have we're completely and you know we've made the other side mad too because we rotate our benefits and you know we've helped Covenant House and in, in New York that houses homeless teens. Well, it turns out they also accept gay teens. So that's been made some activist groups on the other side mad at us. I'm like, that's the Christian way though to house homeless. So it's kind of frustrating. Yeah. Like who can you give to, you know, they got 
mad at us for giving his Salvation Army. The other side did, because apparently there's some controversy there with the LGBT community. I mean, everybody gives the Salvation Army, I thought. You know, Target has them out in front. But anyways, that's that's been a frustrating part of our journey. I think things have calmed down, but I, I, always, I always want to tell people that I understand the hurt, and I completely get it. But... If you'll give us another shot, it's well, we're we're all good people just wanting to serve other good people. So, I want to ask you a, a question that's not related to Chick Fil A. Sure, if that's okay. Uh-huh. I know that you and your family uh, were the driving force uh, behind a new law in Texas several years ago, and I wondered if you could tell that story, what happened, and and why it became important to you to um, to get that legislation to pass. Yeah, so we were pregnant. We have six kiddos, and we were at the time in 2014 pregnant with our fourth. And it was around 12 weeks. Uh, Eric and my wife went in for a sonogram, and there's no heartbeat. And so we're we're devout Catholics. We believe that's a life. So we wanted to bury the child. And when we were talking to our doctor, who is incredible, she's an amazing doctor. She was giving us the option. She said, you could wait and pat. And I know many listening have experienced miscarriage, but you can wait a few weeks and it'll happen at home. Or you could go to the hospital and get a DNC and it's much safer. Well, um, which, what her concern was, the doctor's concern, if we did get the DNC, because we asked, can we keep the baby? She, she thought, it turns out mistakenly, but she thought that BSA wouldn't allow that. So, um, and again, she's been a wonderful doctor, but um, we decided to pass at home. Well, it became very, we didn't know my wife had a bleeding disorder, so it became very scary that night. She spent the night in the ER, and we got to keep the baby, and we buried him, and uh, and all that was wonderful, but we just thought, man, that, that stinks that what we thought BSA's policy was, which wasn't. Right. Uh, but are there other yeah, hospitals there where that is tech, the policy? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we had just moved to Wolfland, and uh, we were out walking, like, in our first couple of weeks there. And our neighbor, we met our neighbor from two houses down, turns out is Fort Price. Okay. And uh, much a to good my, neighbor yeah, to have nearby, I know, I know, right? just casually. <laughs> but, uh, but he was uh, throwing a ball with his dog, and... We were meeting him, and much to my wife's horror, I like brought up, "Hey, do you think it could be a law that the hospitals aren't allowed to do that?" And we told my story. He's like, "Well, come see me. This is the summer uh, of 2014, I think." And he said, "Come see me in the fall when I start. You know, we start getting together legislation here at my office in Amarillo." Never thought he would follow up with that. I just thought he might have been blowing smoke. He reached out to me in the fall, so we talked to him. And again, not high expectations, but it moved through the process. We went for hearing uh, hearing in Austin. Very nervous. We didn't want it to be. So, so what HB 635 was saying no hospital could deny a parent's request okay. for a, mis- a product of miscarriage from conception on. Uh, before that, the law had been 20 weeks on. Okay. Right. Stillborn. So we really didn't want it to be a pro-life, pro-choice thing. Like we wanted this to pass. And so uh, we were nervous because at that hearing, uh, the activist groups on both sides were watching it. 
It's kind of an official designation where they attend. And then the the committee we were we were going in front of was really mixed. Had had some high profile Democrats on it and Republicans and. We so my wife just got up there and told the story, and she did such a beautiful job. And uh, it turns out also the hospital association, the ones who are going to have to deal with, you know, educating their people about this, and they backed it. Hmm. So then they didn't just uh, we were afraid they were going to come out against it. They actually backed it, and four shepherded that through, and it was passed unanimously in the Senate and the House, and we were. Standing with Governor Abbott uh, in August of 2015, having that signed into law, and we we had found out before that too, there were only two other states with laws like that on hmm. the books. And so, I I just want to say, for Price, can I can I plug that man? He Go for just, it. Yeah. You know, we saw him because I I think we we were in Austin to meet with him. We had a 7 a.m. meeting with him one morning, and he had he 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 came in. And I noticed he's drinking a really big cup of coffee. I was like, how late were you up last night? He said, oh, I had this mental health committee hearing and then got over at three in the morning. And oh, he wow. went to his apartment and slept till like four and then showered and came over. It's just some crazy. He got just a couple hours of sleep. And just to see, and the, he was just like that, like just to see, and he is like that. He's a good man who's who really you see – a lot of these politicians are civil servants. They really do serve us. And I, I think we it's it's pretty in vogue to pretend that they're the devil. But right. it, it's really neat seeing them and and seeing how they work, how the the I think the majority of them are good people really trying to make a difference. Cause you know, a lot of what four works on is kind of unsexy stuff like health policy. Yeah. That doesn't get him a lot of claim, but he just, you know. Day in and day, I know those kind of hours he works, and it was just incredible, and um, that was a neat experience. We never thought it was just kind of a lark, kind of a conversation in the neighborhood, and it, it was. It's really neat to have people around that supported it, and I just want to tell people like the one thing we couldn't get as part of that was informed consent, where they tell you that it's an option, hmm. just because it would have been harder to pass. So. We still have people message my wife saying, you know, we didn't know. We didn't know we could ask about this. And miscarriage affects one in four pregnancies. I was going to say, it's yeah, very it common. probably happens yeah. very often. Right. And so, and it's just like, if you don't believe that, that's fine. But if you do and you want to bury your child, you can request it and and go do it safely. Is that is that legislation known by another name? You know, different no. from HB? I mean, no, it, just HB it, 635. Not, yeah, it's... it's uh, it's not, you know, we've we've thought about that over the years. Should we start some sort of organization yeah. that promotes it so people at least know? some better branding? I know, it. yeah. <laughs> we had a Facebook page, and I think it just uh, shut down out of disuse. But we we just try to get the word out there as much as we can. So the last thing I want to ask is, you know, just as, as someone who has planted himself and his family here in Amarillo, um, operating businesses in Amarillo. Uh, what you know? What has this past 10, 12, 15 years of of entrepreneurship in the city sort of taught you about the people here? Oh man, incredibly supportive. I just think this community is special. And and again, it's it's said a thousand times, but I think people are supportive of their neighbors. 
and their fellow Amarilloans. And that's why I like to say, like, I know we're we're crazy about being local and as well we should be. You know, in the, the Catholic Church, we have something called subsidiarity, and it's about being local. But I, I also want people to remember that local is also in your in your bigger corporations too because mm-hmm. we're all living and working here yeah, too. Yeah, those employees. Yeah, yeah. And so so know that uh and that's what we've seen here too. I think we've seen tremendous support and recognition of of, you know, be drawn to businesses and and other people who give a dang, who who care and try to do what's right by their neighbors and I just think this community no better place to raise a family, no better place to live. This week's episode is supported by Wick Realty. I recorded every interview over the past year in my home studio. My family and I love our house. Uh, We love our neighborhood. And we're here because Wick Realty helped us sell our previous home and buy this one. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying, selling, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, we're back with Joshua Rafe. Uh, Joshua, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes Native American artifacts found in Paladuro Canyon that indicate people have lived in this region for at least 10,000 years, uh, around the time that we know cow and sheep were being domesticated in the Middle East. So that was happening wow. over there. We, there were people living here in the canyon at that point. You can uh, see some of those artifacts and learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, the first question is, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I think I hope for more recognition uh, in the state and a higher growth rate. I think we've got a, I think we've got a steady growth rate, but I think, man, that we're still. I always feel like we're on the cusp of of exploding more, and I think we deserve to, and that's what I hope for, and, and I hope that our developers and our leaders make plans for that to enable that growth. Okay, there are some people who worry about. An explosive growth rate because it brings some some growing pains. Is, is I, I, I mean, if you look at our growth rate, it's something like one percent. Right yeah, now. it's okay. very slow. I'm talking steady. about doubling it. Okay, I mean, it's okay. not going to be too crazy. nothing crazy. Then. <laughs> Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? I would say, I'm going to say this carefully, but I would say we have too many, especially. Com- Comparing, I don't like to compare, but comparing us to Lubbock, and I'm part of that. I'm I'm born and bred Amarillo true. I've got that Lubbock, uh, you know, uh, headbutting in me and competition. But I've been pleasantly surprised down there at their development, specifically how things look. So I, I think we have too many investors who are building things that don't contribute to the beauty of the area. Okay. And and I understand it cuz it's an investment. You've got to make a profit. But man, and and I can give you examples. So, you know, I won't say we have too much uh self-storage. I mean, if if there's a market for it, people need it. That's great. But there's a difference between putting up, you know, uh, a white shed with bright green lining and 
how about putting the sheds up and then covering one side that's to the road with brick and a facade? And yeah. some of them do that. And I think that's awesome. I think we have a lot, though, of the of the former. I think there's a lot, you know, stucco strip malls and, yeah. and th- that kind of thing where if maybe people could invest a little more and make something look a little nice and uh, uh, and, and there's examples of that too. And I hope to be part of that solution one day, Okay, uh, ascend to that level where I can actually put my money where my mouth is and, and build something nice. But, but it is in the city and I'm not saying all investors are bad, but I'm saying we seem to have a lot that are maximizing profits, uh, at the expense of Appeal. Maybe, uh, yeah, appeal or aesthetic beauty. I have, I have a friend who's a commercial builder, and one time he was talking about a, a large development in Amarillo, and he said, I think it's a great idea. Those buildings could just be a lot sexier. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I, I think that's right. Yeah. I understand that. And, then, you know, it's part of community. Like, I, I know you could argue, oh, people get used to it, or, you know, the buildings will go in front of it. Or yeah. I, I think it's just part of feeling good about a community, especially in a community that's very pro-business and is not going to force you to. Mm -hmm. And I'm a pretty free market guy. I don't want our city necessarily to be forcing people to, but in the meantime, let's make it to where they don't feel like they have to. Okay. That's a good point. (laughs) What does this area not have enough of? I'm going to say it's going to be kind of weird, but bear with me. Road construction. I don't have enough road road construction. construction. Because it means progress. Like I tell my kids this all the time when we're driving around and they're complaining about that. Kids, this is progress. Like this, just think five years out. Mm -hmm. How much? I mean, look at the loop coming together finally. It's nice driving down that. I can't tell you how many times I've been on the loop in Lubbock and I've thought, we could have had this 20 years ago because Lubbock had this 20 years ago. And they had great city planning like way back in the past. But, but, all of these big constraints. Now, you know, there's outliers. There, there's stuff that takes too long and all that. But for the most part, these are really cool projects. And it's going to be a luxury driving on these things. Yeah. So just be, just keep the end in mind and and stop thinking so short term. We need more road construction. Okay. When you talk to outsiders about Amarillo, what do you talk about? I So I've been called, so I go to Atlanta a lot uh, for Chick-fil-A. And they call me a, a one-man Amarillo Convention Visitors Bureau because, I, you know, I'll spout it all, the helium capital of the world, quarter horse capital of the world. Um, but And I, I always introduce myself, like in a, whether that's a big group or a small group there, uh, Joshua Rafe, uh, Chick-fil-A, Georgia Street, Westgate Mall, Amarillo, Texas, better known as God's Country. <laughs> and uh, so much so that there's some people at the Support Center Atlanta who just call me God's Country. All right. They know about it. not a bad nickname. God's then. Country, yeah. So I, I like to promote it as much as I can. Okay. What's your favorite local neighborhood? Man, so I've lived in a lot. I've lived in six. And I would say our favorite has been Wolflin. I know it's cliche, but man, it's got its own like micro environment. It's really cool. Um, you know, they have their issues, of course. It's not perfect, but uh, also just the people were very warm there uh, when we when we lived there. We just really loved Wolf. I feel like we'll get back there one day. Okay. All right. I'm going to take uh, any Chick-fil-A bias you might have off yeah. the table. So other than your own, what's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? Can I say four real quick? Okay. Yellow City Street Food, uh, Savor. And by the way, I just think what Rory Shapizzi's doing is – 
bringing something completely different to Amarillo in her concepts. I, I'm just yep. a big fan of her. Uh, Baby Crush, especially for their charcuterie and their salads, and then Bangkok, Tokyo for their sushi. Those okay. are those are our four go-tos. All good choices. What's your favorite coffee shop? Okay, because I know all the owners, so I don't want to step on toes, but I'd say Roasters for drive through Palace for Atmosphere, uh, Cliffside for their service, and then the uh, Starbucks and Target when I'm in Target with my wife and I need coffee to get through that experience. Okay, so okay. But I would say- That's oh, convenient. But if I had to pick, I would say overall Palace Okay, for the overall experience. I think I've seen you more at Palace over uh-huh. the last couple of years than I have like at Chick-fil-A. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, it's a great place for meetings and- I think uh, the Burns do a great job with their with their atmosphere and their and their whole experience. Okay, when was the last time you visited the Big Texan? I was talking to my wife about this. We tried to go last year on spring break, and it's like a two and a half hour wait. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got like the Chick Fil A thing thrown back in my face, like these long waits, and I get mad at people for leaving and not just sticking to it. But I apologize. You message Bobby Lee yeah, and complain I, I, directly I, I, to Dan, Danny and Bobby. I apologize. I I did not. I did not stick around that time, but, and then it was before the pandemic. I'd say we go once or twice a year, usually taking out of town guests. Okay. Yeah. But I do enjoy their beer. So yeah, they've yeah. got really good beer. Yeah, they do. One of the first, I guess the first independent brewery in Amarillo when they opened that one. Yeah. And you know, uh, I, I don't know Bobby as well. Danny's a great guy and he has such a heart for the community and, uh, I love, I love what he's doing and how they're always tinkering. They're always tinkering yep. with something with their with their little projects. And it's, they always keep them on brand, and they're just a gem in Amarillo. Okay. That concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like local people to know about or to experience? So just, just because it's different, I would say I, – I alluded to it earlier, but just look at companies – not just, of course, it's a plus that they're locally owned, okay? But also look for companies who really care and who have values. Um, because I can tell you there's, I've I've interviewed people from locally owned places that were getting gypped on pay, just like a corporation would. Um, and there are corporations that are truly awful. Yes, always an extra point for purely locally owned but also look for places, whether that's to work for, by the mm-hmm. way, but also to to give your patronage that 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 have values and do a great job. And because remember, they all started as locally owned places. And so, you know, just like we would root for some locally owned place to turn into a chain and go worldwide, you know, um, as long as they keep their values and and you agree with those values and and you love their product and service. Give them a whirl. Okay. Those are good words. Thanks. Joshua Rafe, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Joshua for the interview. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors Wick Realty and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Hey, Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 286. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>